When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. District of Conservation is sponsored by CFACT. To learn more about our sponsor, head over to cfact.org. Thank you so much for listening. Welcome to District of Conservation. I'm your host, Gabriella Hoffman. This podcast offers a sober examination into all things hunting, fishing, shooting sports, energy, environment, and the public policy surrounding it. And this podcast also specializes in original interviews that you won't hear elsewhere. Here's what I have for you today. All right, listeners, we are in for a treat. You saw me go to Alaska last month. I was filming two videos, and one of the people who was really integral with helping us cement interviews, get to know Alaska, is this individual joining our show today, Rick Whitback from Power of the Future. And I thought I, he sh- I should invite him to come on the show and talk about what his group does about Alaska issues and anything Lower 48 or should be aware of. So, Rick, it's good to catch up with you, even from afar now. Well, yeah, certainly. I, I appreciated the opportunity to, to get to meet you while you were here last uh, last month. And uh, it's, you know, what, what you're doing is amazing work. And we're just proud to be part of uh, season six of the podcast. So congratulations on making it uh, this far and, and the success of the podcast so far. Yes, we're keeping the machine going. And you're downplaying your efforts. You took a salmon fishing. You you were very generous to me in Madison. So I can't thank you enough for the hospitality and for, for all the connections. And you will be featured, actually, in one of the reports. Teaser there for, for those curious. And so, Rick, talk about your involvement with Power of the Future and your general interest in these natural resources energy issues, please. Certainly. Um, so Power of the Future is a national nonprofit started by a gentleman named Daniel Turner, uh, about five and a half, six years ago, with the goal of being the voice for energy workers across the country. Um, energy workers are a, uh, you know, uh, there's millions of them, 10 million or so that work across the country in resource development opportunities, um, energy extraction, you know, traditional energy uh, jobs. And although there's a lot of great membership organizations, a lot of the times the workers themselves were, you know, thought of secondarily. So Power of the Future is there to protect the men and women who are working in energy uh, from executive and, and administrative overreach, from ENGO, environmental group activity, by you know from radicalized um, ideologues that want to thwart their jobs, damage their families, kill their communities, and do so in the name of you know trying to save the planet that doesn't need to be saved right now. Gabby, it, it, it's not. It's not an either-or situation between um, pristine environment and responsible development uh, development of the of the planet. And you know, unlike what um, my friends on the left would tell you, uh, you know, we can have both. And here in America, it's all about that balance and that you know, world-leading um, environmental uh, regulation in conjunction with men and women who go out and work in some of the craziest conditions. Uh, across this you know, country, and certainly here in the state of Alaska. And as my viewers and our listeners will get to know as through our conversation with you today, or rather this recording, that Alaska knows how to balance 
responsible, sustainable development with environmental stewardship. So could you talk a little bit about the Alaska model more so? Because Alaska has some interesting carve-outs given its admission into the United States when it was formerly a territory and now a state. So natural resources conservation is pretty high up there. It's in the state constitution. But could you explain the model and some of the laws that make it so Alaska can exact and do this model that the federal government is trying to undermine and and infringe on? Certainly. So when Alaska was first purchased from Russia back uh, 175 years ago, um, it was it was purchased because of known uh, mineral and wildlife opportunities. Right. So Russia sold it to the U.S. Um, Gold was discovered up in outside of Nome and in southeast Alaska. Alaska has always been rich in development history. When the U.S. was looking to bring Alaska in as the 49th state, and we were actually in a race with Hawaii to become 49 and 50, we beat Hawaii, um, you know, by a couple of months. But when they were looking at bringing Alaska in, there was some concern that because we were so far away from the power center of D.C. and because we weren't uh, um, because we're just a vast state, right? Two and a half times the size of Texas, population of only about 750,000 people now, um, but obviously much, much smaller back in the, the late 1950s. There was some concern that the economic model wasn't going to be able to be sustained and that we would basically be a, a drain on the federal treasury with um, welfare and things like that. So the Alaska... Uh, Statehood Act requires that Alaska be uh, tasked with developing our natural resources so that we're not a drain on the federal treasury. It's the only state in, you know, with the statehood compact that specifically lays out that you will, by mandate, by Congress and by the president, develop your natural resources for the benefit of all Alaskans and all Americans. Um, so with that in mind, what we do up here and what, you know, I've been in Alaska now for uh, almost 40 years of, of my life. And what, what we do up here is take that to heed. We have, I, I will tell you, having gone to a number of states and seen, you know, resource opportunities, nobody does it better than Alaska. You can't let alone, you, you can't spit um, tobacco on the ground in Prudhoe Bay without getting written up and reprimanded. You can't leave cigarette butts around job sites. You can't, you know, if, if a, all of the trucks and, and um, you know, dozers and heavy equipment in any of our locations have drip pads underneath them as a, as a standard, right? You, you don't, if you're going to park your truck overnight, you put a drip pad underneath in case you drip off, you know, uh, coolant or, or oil or have a, you know, unforeseen leak. That's the way that we do things in Alaska with the highest level of environmental care. Because we understand that, and you were here, God's grandeur abounds in Alaska. I mean, the reason that all of us that live up here enjoy it so much is because you can look outside right now and see mountains and see waterfalls and, you know, see just within a couple of blocks of my home here in Anchorage, salmon running upstream to spawn. And, you know, you can get out 20 minutes away from where I am right now and be in really pristine undeveloped parts of the state that are literally just a stone's throw away from a major metropolitan center. Um, 
you know, I know that without teasing your um, Anchorage upcoming uh, vlog, you know, you got to experience a little bit of of, uh, our great state. There's so much more you didn't see. But people up here live, work and play in Alaska because of how special it is. And none of us, I don't know one person that ever wants to see that beauty taken away because of um, development opportunities run amok. We regulate them better than any state that I know. And certainly, you know, here in the U.S., our environmental regulations and environmental stewardship is better than any country in the world. Even though there's substantial proof showing that Alaskans know how best to treat and manage their natural resources to not waste them or destroy them, it's really kind of conceited of lower 48ers. And I, I'm not one of them because I, le- I like states doing their own thing. I'm a federalist. In that respect, of course, I believe states' rights, all that. But the proof is there that Alaska manages everything very well. Yet we see people time and time again who have no proximity to the state. They don't live there. They're coming into the state and dictating to you all what should and should be done. And why does this continue to happen, even though the laws clearly state what Alaska does, your state constitution clearly does this? Is it because of who's in charge federally? And whenever you have certain administrations, those people tend to up the ante with a tax on Alaska and then, you know, display hypocrisy with their environmental record when they say no developing here at home. But let's go with third world countries that have abominable environmental and work conditions. Wow. We could probably talk for the next four hours on that question (laughs) alone, but we won't. Um, I'll I'll, I'll give you you a five minute answer. Right. So. Alaska is ground zero for environmental radical uh, activity. Again, having been up here my entire adult life and and before that, um, I can tell you that we are thought of as America's gigantic national park. It's not Yellowstone. It's not, you know, it's not Acadia. It's Alaska as a whole should be, according to the environmental zealots, a, a, a federal and state park, zero development opportunities. And so, because that, that myth is perpetuated and because the zealots forget the fact that we are, you know, we are basically ordered to develop our resources responsibly, they spend hundreds of millions of dollars trying to lock up the state. When you get a puppet in the White House like Joe Biden, who's owned by the environmental left, among others, right, 10% for the big guy, what you get <laughs> is um, – What you get is federal policy that is designed to lock up Alaska, to thwart resource opportunities, to um, to walk back congressionally approved action. Uh, We we saw that today as we're taping this on Wednesday, the 6th news broke today that uh, that the Biden administration is taking fully executed leases in Anwar that were congressionally authorized under ANILCA back in 1980 and approved formally uh, by the Tax Act of 2017 that, that were formally authorized by Congress twice, signed off by President Trump. Leases were held in um, at the end of December in 2020. Leases were signed before Trump left office with, with companies to go ahead and start to develop the, uh, the 1002, the coastal plain of Anwar. And today, the 6th, um, President Biden walked those back with executive orders. So why did he do it? Well, he did it because the environmental left lost their ever-loving minds 
when a congressionally authorized lease sale was held, which, by the way, Congress also said that by the end of 2024, a second lease sale must be, not could be, not should be, but must be held. And so Biden's basically saying, well, you know, laws don't matter because we have to save the planet and we have to save Alaska from itself. Hmm. It's it's the same thing that they did with the Pebble Mine, which um, had a completely clean final environmental impact statement. Politics got involved. The radical left uh, right now has won on Pebble Mine because the EPA, for only the fifth time in the last 55 years, preemptively vetoed a project before it was fully uh, through the permitting process. Um, so Pebble sits in, you know, kind of EPA purgatory right now. Um, we have a very, we have a very activist set of judges up here on the federal side that like to take the law into their own hands and override the whole trust the science narrative of the left, right? You, you hear this all the time, Gabriella, trust the science, except for when the science says safely develop, you know, safe development can occur. And then science goes out the window and, and Alaska sees it each and every day from attacks from, uh, you know, from basically people who just want to see us a national park, no people here, you know, they'd like me to move because I advocate for responsible development again in close coordination and uh, not in competition with environmental stewardship. They do the same kind of turning a blind eye to science when it comes to wildlife management in Alaska and even even yes. in the lower 48 as well. So they're very selective about the science. But can you talk more about Anwar? Because I've heard from different people I've spoken to. I interviewed an outdoor writer who's based in Alaska, I think closer to Fairbanks, and he wrote an excellent piece about the Alaska Federal Subsistence Board closing 60 million plus acres to caribou hunting, I think for people, not necessarily non-residents, but people who don't live in the area, including even non-residents, non-Alaska residents as well. And he was saying that Anmar really doesn't have any impact deleteriously to the caribou population. That was one stipulation he told to me. And I, I don't know if the, the Federal Subsistence Board has direct oversight over uh, Anwar. They may be two separate entities, which I think that could be the case. Maybe they do have oversight. But he had said that um, – I asked him, I said, so how does Anwar fit into the picture? And he said there's really no impact. But you have federal boards uh, with Biden administration appointees dictating to Alaska even in that respect to in the vicinity of Anwar. And I know Anwar has been studied extensively for 40 years back and forth across administrations. And all conclusions have pointed that it's pretty safe. It won't have impact on the environment or even the wildlife much. And it should proceed. So could you speak more to Anwar and and how much it's been studied? Well, certainly. So... (laughs) Anwar has been studied again since the 70s, right? And, and congressionally, um, they studied it, the, the oil and gas companies that were doing business and, and looking to do business back in the, in the 70s and, and early 80s um, studied it to death. Uh, you know, we've had 40 years of scientific study with various peer-reviewed studies saying, you know, it's going to impact this, this herd or not. But let me tell you a story about the Prudhoe Bay herd, the northern caribou herd. Please. It was actually um, in trouble back in the late 70s and, and or, I'm sorry, late 60s and early 70s. Now, if you go up to Prudhoe Bay, you see the caribou flourishing. Um, Tristan Justice did a great piece in The Federalist about a year ago about the, the northern caribou herd. And he found out that, you know, at one time it was down into the 17,000 range. It's gone as high as 160,000 caribou since then before settling into kind of about an 80 to 100,000 
as they study it every five to 10 years, right? So um, the, the technologies of Prudhoe Bay and the massive oil fields and the Trans-Alaska pipeline um, have done nothing but help the caribou herd because it's given them roads to walk on when, the, you know, when, there's, when there's bad weather. It's given them the pipelines them, themselves to go get warm um, next to. And it's funny, uh, I was up in Prudhoe last summer uh, and with a, with a group of journalists and we came around the corner and the caribou were the, that were there and there were dozens of them were um, getting the bugs off by, you know, rubbing up against the pipeline and hanging out underneath them because it was shade and it was actually warm up in Prudhoe Bay. It was in the 60s, um, you know, which is probably warm for caribou. Uh, and they were staying in the shade and rubbing their butt, you know, the, the mosquitoes off. And they were having a grand old time. And it's that, again, it's that care and caring and concern for the environment, whether it's subsistence or, you know, the, the natural beauty of Alaska that goes hand in hand with the way that Alaska uh, looks to develop its resource basis. And, you know, I'm not a fan of overdevelopment because I don't want every place to encompass a Walmart or a superstore or anything of that nature. But I've noticed even living here close to Washington, D.C., you have development, for instance, in my suburban neighborhood of the greater, you know, D.C. metro area, I'm seeing, I haven't seen coyotes yet, but I've seen foxes. We have lots of red-tailed hawks. I've seen bald eagles, ospreys, white-tailed deer, owls, many different types of birds, flora and fauna that I would have never seen in California. I, I saw a little bit in California, but I've seen more wildlife, even in this kind of anecdotal uh, example I'm providing, in my place, which is pretty developed. So I know that wildlife can adapt. And even if it's, let's say, temporarily interrupted, that the landscape is temporarily interrupted, you know, with installation. In the case that you pointed with the caribou, they've learned how to adjust and they find that, oh, this heat source uh, that's carrying energy may actually be helpful for like warding off mosquitoes, as you mentioned. So I think animals, we kind of underestimate their ability to adapt, even in, let's say, a changing, you know, circumstance or development or what have you. They're very smart and they they have to learn to adapt or they, they fail to exist going forward yeah certainly and you know you see i mean we have whether it's fish whether it's you know um uh, you know mammals whether it's ground squirrels whether you know whether it's ptarmigan in alaska um there's a natural prey and predator situation there's there's development although certainly not you know not development outside of our cities like you would you would see on the east coast but you know, these, these animals are mostly migratory within regions of the state. And, you know, they, they actually, I would say, benefit from um, opportunities to, you know, to, to, again, work hand in hand with the developed areas. Here's, a, here's what else I would tell you. When, and you and Madison saw this when you were up here. There's, there's wildlife on every, you know, around every bend of a river, Right. Mm-hmm. The, the the amount of wildlife in Alaska that the average Alaskan and me included will never, ever see because they're hiding in the, you know, they're hiding in the brush. They're hanging out, um, you know, in, in the forests and in the meadows. We're so blessed with, you know, not only the variety, but the numbers of wildlife here in the state development hasn't harmed those um, regardless of what the eco left would say. Right. 
they've, they've helped them thrive. And the only thing that is going to harm Alaska's wildlife is bad federal policy, whether it's hunting and fishing regulations, whether it's, um, you know, uh, allowing things like the Magnuson-Stevens Act to impact uh, trawling and, you know, which impacts salmon stock, whether it's bad forest management that leads to huge wildfires. Um, and you saw that on your drive down to the Kenai Peninsula, huge swaths of land five years ago burned up because of bad federal forest uh, policies. And, you know, that's what wipes out wildlife habitat. It's not, you know, a, a well-planned development opportunity. Yeah. And they complain about like climate change is perpetuating a crisis and they love to slap that on every single thing. And I think, I think most people understand that the climate naturally changes. Is it catastrophic? Uh, judging off of what I've seen, you know, numbers about hurricanes and the frequency, we are seeing fewer people thankfully die from, you know, natural disasters and other type of extreme weather events. So that's what people are kind of missing from the picture. And then they, they slap on, you know, climate crisis, climate here. I think when, before we had met up with you guys, I'd seen the headline a few days before us vin- visiting Mendenhall Glacier and they said, Mendenhall Glacier. And they said, Oh my goodness, it's a climate crisis. It's melting. And I, I saw chunks of the iceberg, you know, floating in that lake in Mendenhall Lake. And, uh, it was cold. It didn't seem any different. And, and perhaps there's a little less ice, but they're like, the, uh, the glacier is going to disappear within a few short years. And, and to me, I was like, I know that glaciers break off pieces and, uh, it's cold enough in, in Juneau rather, uh, that probably more ice will build up. It'll, it'll continue to, you know, form and, and stay there. No one wants to see the glacier go away because it's a good tourist draw. So I've, even in our Alaska trip, we were seeing kind of that alarmist rhetoric, uh, kind of overlay, certain places that we visited and they talked about, you know, the salmon run is delayed because of climate change. And we were talking to Shannon and I said, is this the case? And, and, and you as well. And you're like, no, it just happens. Sometimes there are off years that the salmon run a little later, but we saw them, you know, uh, a little bit at Mendehall Glacier. We saw them a little bit uh, while fishing with you in the Kenai Peninsula as well. So it, it seems like they love to push that rhetoric there, even though they don't understand other factors may be at play for why does, why was there flooding near Mendenhall Glacier or why the salmon run was slower this year or later this year rather. Well, you know, I'm I'm waiting for the I'm waiting for the next um, you know COVID variant to be uh, blamed on climate change the way that <laughs> that's coming. The way that the going. I mean, it's, you know, everything is blamed on climate change, right? The the Maui wildfires are climate change. The uh, the uh, atmospheric river that ran up California as a result of um, I would call it Typhoon Hillary. They are calling it Hurricane Hillary. Um, you know, the the one that just hit Florida was exacerbated because of climate change. Let's be serious, guys. Um, the one that just hit Florida was a category three storm. And the one that just hit Florida did more damage because more people live in Florida now than they did 50 years ago. It's a free, it's a freedom loving state. Governor DeSantis has done a great job of bringing people to Florida tax policy, you know, um, and, and, and it's nice weather. And who wants to live in New York or New Jersey when you can live in Florida in the winter. And so, you know, what you haven't heard and, and the left doesn't say is, Oh, that category five storm is worse than the other category five storm because of climate change, because category five storms have sustained winds of whatever, 150 plus. It's not worse because of climate change. It's doing more damage because there's more people in Florida. So, again, the left's narrative ignores science. It, it's it's convenient politically. Uh, you know, Mindenhall Glacier is receding. Guess what? How do you think Mindenhall Glacier got built? Because 100,000 years ago. There was an ice age. 
Now we're going through a warming stage. We're going to go through an ice age again. We're going to go through a warming stage. It's not exacerbated because of anthropomorphic climate change. It's a phase in the Earth's um, history. And I would tell you that anybody that thinks that we're in this climate crisis, okay, go back and live in 1870, Gabriella, <laughs> and look at the technology that's happened since 1870. Would you trade off all the technological advances since 1870 to today? And there's, you know, we could spend an hour on them, right? And not have this so-called climate crisis. Only an idiot would say, "Yeah, let's let's go back to 1870 and never have a second industrial revolution." They don't even want that themselves because when they're held to the standard of living up to what they want, they're not going to give up their comfortable luxuries and their amenities. Oh, they they're the last people to surrender. They want the rest of us to do this, but they themselves won't go to those pre-industrial revolution type standards because it's impossible to enforce. It's impossible to live. And and nobody likes that. People see what's still happening in Africa, how certain conditions are still being imposed on them. They can't uh, adapt a little bit more to modern society because of certain policies in place. And, and they don't have reliable electricity. So even right. that kind of more modern context, too, that's kind of what they want to put us in. And and those poor people, they, they have the potential. They have so many natural resources and, and China's gobbling all of them up as well. And uh, they, they want us to look like Africa in a sense where we have – you know, limited resources to access. Um, we live in these kind of barren conditions, unreliable energy, blackouts, brownouts, things of that sort. And and that's not sustainable. And we see what happens, you know, even in red states like Texas, they've experimented with this too, with, with this net zero folly. So th this leads me to kind of something I wanted to ask you as well, Rick. So besides, I know your focus is Alaska with Power of the Future, but what else are you, Daniel, and the rest of your organization trying to tackle at the kind of more... Um, granular level or even beyond your scope in Alaska? What, what are you guys tackling federally right now or nationwide rather? Well, certainly, and that's a great question because certainly at a, as an organization, we are an advocacy and, and educational one. We're not a political one, right? But, but energy undergirds every facet of American life. Um, there's an organization called Life Powered out of Texas that talks about all, this, all the items that you touch on it on an everyday basis that are made out of traditional energy sources, petrochemicals, oil and gas, mine materials, right? 37,000 times you will touch in a given week, if you're an average American, uh, products that are made out of traditional energy sources. 37,000 times a week. And so trying to you know, take the, the left's narrative of we need to do away with fossil fuels, number one, again, isn't ever going to happen. So Power of the Future is a voice for Realism, energy realism. We fight back against the agenda that, again, traditional energy is bad. So the three of us in the organization spend a lot of time on media um, and in the media and doing interviews and you know, hitting radio shows and writing op-eds and, and uh, you know, getting the message out that energy workers are crucial to rural America, that energy opportunities should be uh, prevalent and not put down. And that empowering China for our energy grid when we have all the necessary items, or at least the vast majority of necessary items here in the U.S. is a fool's errand. But that's exactly what the eco-left wants to have happen, right? They would much rather be, they're, they're fine with the Uyghur people being enslaved in China to you know, work in a, in, a, in a processing facility and in a mine, but they'll be damned if they're going to allow 
you know, Alaskans to flourish in Bristol Bay at the <laughs> Pebble Mine, because that's just not that's not the narrative that sells to their you know to their mega donors um, here in the U.S. It's it's a stupid, non-scientific, non-human rights narrative that's being pushed by the radical environmental movement, and we're going to push back as vociferously and aggressively against that uh, against that narrative as we can at Power of the Future. So certainly between now and the election in 2024, we want to bring truth to the energy conversation, to point out the hypocrisy of certain individuals and certain groups, um, you know, in, in the way that they walk their talk. Um, and we certainly want to uh, be a voice to champion, again, the millions of Americans who uh, have powered our past, power our present, and will power the future. We have to call these folks preservationists. I've used that term many times, and we I, I think I mentioned it to you when we met up in Alaska, too, mm -hmm. because, and maybe there has to be a better word, because there there is some good preservation. I don't discount that, um, you know, that it's needed. You know, I like national parks, but I don't want everything to be a national park, and certain things should be preserved, of course, for antiquities, um, if it's a sensitive area, but these people are, in a sense, bastardizing conservation and conflating their efforts to radically preserve things, keep things off limits to the public, even ironically, um, with and, and conflating it with conservation, which is deliberate and intentional because they want the public to to believe that their efforts are true, that they're representative of what true conservation is, but they're not when you look at how their policies are implemented and fully adopted. Well, and, and you know, you, you, you hit it on the head. Um, think about the word environmentalist. Back in the 1970s, um, you know, I would be a classic environmentalist. You would be a classic environmentalist. It was somebody who understood the balance between nature and the developed world. It was somebody who was always looking out for nature um, in balance with the world. Now that, wor that, that word has been co-opted by the left to be somebody who thinks of nature above all else. And that's been a very deliberate, very slow moving, very um, uh, yet very aggressive at the same time, move to turn environmentalism into a, a war on development. Wasn't always that way, right? I am an environmentalist, a classic environmentalist. You are too. You care about nature. I care about nature. I don't want my Alaska or my United States or, you know, my my town here in Anchorage to be harmed because of bad public policy. Yet, when it comes to the current environmentalists, they're doing exactly that. They're hurting jobs. They're hurting communities. They're um, they're hurting the name of classic environmentalism. And, you know, really, uh, they're doing more harm for America and here in my great state of Alaska, they're doing more harm to, you know, the 750,000 of us than, than has ever been done to, uh, to help us. It's absolutely abhorrent. Yeah, the great paradox, uh, the so-called environmentalists who actually will leave both people and nature worse off. And that's where I kind of want to conclude, Rick. Where can people connect with you and learn about Power of the Future and get involved if they're interested? Yeah, certainly. Um, we are we're online at powerthefuture.com. We have a very robust website. Um, we have a YouTube channel under Power of the Future. We're on Instagram and uh, and and Twitter or X, I guess now um, under at Power of the Future or Power of the Future. 
Uh, Daniel Turner, our founder, is at Daniel Turner PTF on X. Uh, I'm at PTF Alaska. Um, you can always email me at rick at powerthefuture.com if you have questions about the organization. Um, you know, even though I'm focused on Alaska, I'll get you to the right person if you have questions. So, um, you know, we're on Facebook at Power of the Future. And then I have a radio show every week focused on energy uh, and resource development called the Power of the Future Energy Hour. You can go to soundcloud.com and search for Power of the Future and find that. Or um, every Tuesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Alaska, uh, 1020kbnt.com. You can listen anywhere in the world online. And it's a lot of fun. I've had you on. Um, I've had you know multiple governors on, U.S. senators, uh, people from resource, uh, people from uh, you know, I'm going to have uh, Rick Perry was up here, former energy secretary and, and governor of Texas. He was up here for a, a oil and gas conference last week, and he'll be on by the end of the year. Um, secretary uh, Bernhardt is going to be on by the end of the year, uh, former interior secretary. We've had, you know, some really good guests on, on that show. And, you know, not that not that I don't want everybody listen, everybody to listen to the District Conservation podcast first, but I'm a fun second. <laughs> That's a very nice plug uh, for both the shows. Thank you, Rick. Um, but no, yes, your your show was a lot of fun to go on. And yes, I'll try to find the link for that uh, for that appearance. But please send me all the following links. We're going to include it all in the show notes. If you guys liked a lot of the resources that Rick provided relating to his group, and I actually would love to include the caribou piece that you wrote or that you mentioned from the Federalist. I think that's going to be really interesting reading. I like the term classic environmentalism. It's like classical liberalism, which is what I hope, you know, politically we kind of go back to um, because liberalism is not what people think it is today. It, it means small government, freedom, liberty minded, all that type of stuff. So, Rick, it has been wonderful to catch up with you. Thank you for coming on to share what Power of the Future has been doing, kind of the latest news from Alaska and ways for the lower 48 to learn how to appreciate and maybe even sell them on visiting Alaska like you did for me and Madison. Well, we, we had a blast when you guys were up here. I can't wait to, uh, to see the, the pieces when they're finished. And, you know, thanks for investing your time and, and energy into, uh, into this, you know, into this state. It's, it's an amazing place to live, work and play. And yeah, come on up and, and visit anybody. Um, this is God's grandeur. God, God really blessed Alaska. And uh, I love to show it off. And maybe, you know, maybe you'll catch more fish than you and I did. Thanks for listening to District of Conservation. If you enjoyed what you heard today, go leave us some reviews on Apple and Spotify or wherever podcasts are played. Your feedback will help us reach more people. And I love to know what is on your mind after each episode. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to never miss a beat or a guest announcement because that is our way of updating all of you listeners. And we have just hit a thousand followers on Instagram for the podcast account. Thank you very much. And if you have any guest suggestions or topics you want to hear on the show, I'm all ears. I would love to hear your feedback there. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for the next episode.